Let me start with a, a story like I did last week, if I could. A woman named Hannah Lee Grenwald. She had been told to expect the Taliban's attack in Kabul. And she and other doctors from her clinic had been put on standby at a UN building across the street from where she lived, the apartment complex where she lived. Nothing, however, prepared her for what the Taliban's actual target was. There was a terrible silence that hung in the air and nothing seemed to move. The city was usually bustling with noise of traffic and horns and barking dogs. And those things were strangely absent. As darkness approached, Hannah Lee noticed that no lights were on in their top floor apartment. She worried and she prayed while awaiting news of her family. At 5.45 p.m., as she's holed up at the U.N. building, she hears the shattering of the silence with sounds of gunfire, followed by a large explosion. Hanley was later to learn that her husband and two children had not survived. Before moving to Afghanistan in 2003, Hanley and her husband, Werner, had discussed the possibility of dying in this war-torn country. They considered the dangers of raising two children, Jean-Pierre, who was then five, and Rodet, who was then three, in the dangers of a region that was dominated by the Taliban. They knew that their lives would be drastically different from the life they had known, yet God's call was just as real as the dangers that they would face, and they knew that obedience to Him mattered more than their fears. Nearly three years after the attack, Hannah Lee will tell you, it is well with my soul. Although it has not been easy for her, she knows that God has been with her through everything. Looking back on her family's years in Afghanistan, she said, it was worth it. She said, I wouldn't change a thing. She says, I don't think that we will ever know 100% what the impact is of the work that we did in Afghanistan throughout the years. I think that we will know on that day, though, when we are in front of the Lord, but I believe that we made an impact in people's lives. I believe also that my family's blood that was shed, it is like the seed for the Afghan church, that there will be a thousand-fold harvest in the end because I believe that God has the last move. Hanley said that she is proud of her family's obedience to Christ, she knows their sacrifice and their service was for God's glory. It is easy for us, she says, as Christians to worship the Lord on Sundays in church and to praise Him, but it is so very difficult to have a heartfelt obedience to the Lord and go when He calls you. She said, I believe that there is a price tag attached to being a real born-again believer. Jesus Christ was persecuted Himself. He was crucified crucified and we are his servants we are nothing better than he is or he he was it will happen to all of us if we are really living a lifestyle that is like that of a born-again believer following the lord in obedience there will be a price to pay she said we had a clear calling we had a mandate with this we had counted the cost we knew that something like this could happen and god allowed it for a reason I know that they, my family, are actually chasing me on to the finish line as well, to finish this race well. She says, I believe that one day Jean-Pierre will say to me, Mom, what took you so long to get here? 
I believe that they are where they are supposed to be, on Jesus' lap, and I cannot wait to be there as well. But I have to finish this race for the Lord. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. So like we said last week, persecution will come to the Christian. Amen. It is the experience of the apostles. It is the experience throughout all of Christian history. It is the experience of our Lord, and perhaps most importantly, it is the word of our Lord. In John 16, Jesus said, in this life you will have tribulation. If you look carefully, though, you will see that Jesus gave two very massive qualifying statements in that blessing statement, that particular blessedness when he said that uh, it is for righteousness' sake, persecution, and that it is for on my account. So not all persecution, we alluded to this last week, not all persecution is blessed because not all persecution is for righteousness' sake and not all persecution is on account of Christ's name. You can be beaten and mocked and hated and those are certainly forms of persecution. Um, those things don't always come because of your relationship with Christ, however. We must not conflate things like political and social and racial persecution with persecution for righteousness' sake or because of the name of Jesus. All persecution is wicked. All of it is wicked. Racism is persecution that is based on someone's ethnicity. It is wicked and it is contrary to God's clear command and His desire for His people. But it is not blessed to be persecuted because of your ethnicity or because of the color of your skin. This is something that we ought not to rejoice and be glad over. We should not be happy when they persecute us or someone gets persecuted because of the color of his skin. It is wicked, it is injustice, it is hatred, plain and simple. The victims of racism and that kind of persecution should stand strong against it. Those of us who are, are in the body of Christ, those of us who love righteousness and who love mercy and who love justice, we should stand strong against it and we should cry out against it and we should resist it with all of our might because it is wicked, not because it is just not fair or it is not equitable. Because it is evil and wrong. That is why we should resist it. That is why the victims of persecution for racial reasons should resist it. Not because of a lack of equity. But because it is wrong. It is wicked. And this is where Jesus draws the line in the sand. To the differences between what is blessed and what is not. As it relates to persecution. So many people will cry out against the effects of something like racism because it causes pain to the victims, and it does, real pain. They will cry out against it, and they'll fight against it because it creates an arbitrary and harmful imbalance of power, a harmful imbalance of economic power, an imbalance of social power, an imbalance of political power. 
arbitrary and harmful. And they'll cry out because it's not fair. And all of those things are true. It's not fair, and, it's, and it shouldn't exist. It shouldn't be that way. It's not right. But the persecuted are not blessed in this case because they are not being persecuted for righteousness' sake or on account of his name, but because of something as superficial as skin color. It literally is skin deep. Now, the struggle against the evil of racism is right because racism is evil. If we struggle against it on the basis of our relationship with Christ, who teaches us to love our neighbor as ourselves, and on the basis of the Scripture, which teaches us that there is neither male nor female nor Jew nor Greek nor bond nor free in the kingdom of God, when you're persecuted for taking that stand on the basis of righteousness and on account of Christ, then that is cause to rejoice and be glad. Not every struggle against racism or injustice or social wrongs is a Christian struggle. Many people, they want to write a grievous wrong with more wrong. Amen. You know, Dad used to say, two wrongs don't make a right, but they make an airplane. Amen. Now, two rights make an airplane. That's what it was. I, I totally botched that one. That's why I don't tell jokes from the pulpit. They try to right a wrong with another wrong. They'll say things, I mean, the idea behind it is, you know, I have suffered persecution, and therefore I must make my persecutors suffer in order to be vindicated of my suffering. That's the thinking behind it. There's a man named Ibram X. Kendi, who is one of the leading proponents of critical race theory. He said that the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. And he's one of the leading thought uh, uh, purveyors in the, the whole anti-racist uh, social justice movement. He's often quoted um, in the, the works that he produces. And this is his thinking. That the only remedy for this wrong is to create more wrong. This is backwards upside-down, bizarro ideology that aims to right a wrong by committing more of the same wrong. It's wicked. It's a wicked pursuit of a righteous end. How can that be? Well, it's, it, that's what it looks like. So when someone faces more persecution on the basis of this backward ideology, so we need to create more wrong, we need to be more racist and more discrimination to, to cure past discrimination, it's not right that they're persecuted because all persecution is wicked. It's not right that they're persecuted, but the victim has no cause to rejoice and be glad in this because they only have cause for grief and sorrow. They're not standing on what is righteous or true. But... And take the same righteous struggle against racism and injustice. You oppose racism on the basis of Scripture, on the basis of the command that we love our neighbor. We oppose it because it is wicked and not because it is just not fair. We fight that battle with meekness and humility and mercy and grace, loving our neighbors as Christ first loved us. And guess what? You will be persecuted for that fight even by those who claim to want the same end as you. They will persecute you because of your methods and because your message of reconciliation under the unity of the banner of Christ. Amen. Amen. And that, dear Christian, is a blessed place to be. Persecuted for the sake of His name, on account of His name, 
for the sake of righteousness. The same thing can be said for social and political persecution. Very recently, you know, we've seen a, a strong uptick in um, the coordinated silencing of social uh, and political conservative voices. If your opinions that you have, they run afoul of the mainstream ideology, then guess what? They try to cancel you, or at the very least, they try to uh, discredit you. They do what they can to silence you. They get fired from your job. They make sure you can never have a platform to speak from again. They make sure that no one takes you seriously, try to discredit you in the public sphere. You can be maligned and made fun of because you support gun rights or voter registration or the enforcement of legal immigration, but don't conflate that with suffering for righteousness' sake. You can be politically persecuted for supporting Donald Trump or Joe Biden, but don't conflate that with persecuting or being or suffering for the sake of Christ because neither one of them are he. What is alarming, what is truly alarming, is that so many Christians in this country have done just that. They have conflated this political persecution, social persecution, with the persecution for righteousness' sake, for the sake of Christ. Politics has become a religion in and of itself in this nation, especially and most woefully in in churches. A massive number of evangelical Christians in this country would willingly and boldly face persecution and even death for the name of their political candidate, left, right, and center, or their political ideology, left, right, and center. But for the name of Christ, they can't get bothered to get out of bed, to come to church on Sunday, to gather to worship the God that they claim to love, much less to face any real persecution on account of his great name. Any excuse we have to not come, any excuse we have to to forget him, put him on a back burner, but you let someone come against your stand on whether or not you have the right to bear arms. Look, I'm not fighting that battle. I I believe fully in the Second Amendment, but which which hill are we going to die on? Which hill are we willing to be persecuted for? This is truly alarming. And as believers in Christ, we are redeemed by His blood. We are citizens of another kingdom. We are in this world, but not of this world. Paul said that the faithful servant of the Lord does not get entangled up, doesn't get tangled up in civilian pursuits. doesn't mean that we're we're disconnected, but we're not not wrapped up in it. Because our citizenship is in another kingdom. Nations will fall, governments will rise and fall, and the word of the Lord will stand. At the end of the day, we will be standing before his throne. We will be in awe of his glory. It's also not persecution just because someone or even many people disagree with you or challenge your ideas. No one likes to have their assumptions challenged, that's true. It makes them uncomfortable, and it causes them to have to confront their own ideas in ways that they don't like. No one likes to have their beliefs unraveled. So when we're challenged, when when our assumptions are challenged, it may feel like persecution, but it necessarily isn't so. It can be, but again, it goes back to the basis of the persecution. Why are you being persecuted? Are they hurting you? Are they hating you? Are they reviling you? Are they speaking evil against you falsely because of righteousness' sake? 
You know, we've had it so good in this country for so long that we've gotten a very thin skin when it comes to our faith. We, we love to whine about how hard it is to be a Christian anymore because of all the culture that's against us and the, you know, everybody's against us and everyone's, you know, no one likes to say they're a Christian anymore. And if they do say they're a Christian, then they're going to make fun of you or they're going to talk bad about you. And, you know, I'm absolutely, I will grant that things are more difficult in this country today than they were 50 years ago. But more difficult than what? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that in this part of the country, it was an asset for you to be considered a Christian and to be a faithful member of a church. That was an asset for you. And it was almost a prerequisite to serve in any kind of political office. You had to run on that platform. I'm a good Christian man. Same thing can be said about the labor market. It, it used to be an asset for you to belong to a church, and it wasn't that long ago. So, so we've gone downhill, but get downhill from what? <laughs> this may be a downward spiral for Christians here, but it's, it is not hard to be a Christian in the most religiously free nation in human history. I just feel like I needed to point that out. Maybe it's for some of you who feel like you're overly oppressed. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's for someone who will hear me online. In the grand scheme of things, we have it so easy here. There are churches in other parts of the world where they, they cannot sing when they gather. They gather in secret, in dark corners of dark rooms, and they can't sing. Because if they sing, someone might hear them, and they would be discovered and arrested or shot on the spot or worse. And they take all of that into consideration so that when they gather and, and they do, they have cause for worship, they want to sing and praise to God, so they sing, they whisper, and they sing under their breath. Read their testimonies. Psalms 47.1 says, Clap your hands, all ye people. Shout to the Lord with loud songs of joy. But if they were to do this, they would be dead and there would be no gospel in their cities. So they, they gather and they sing and they sing quietly, shouting in their hearts but whispering with their mouths. And don't you know they long to do what we do, to do what we have the right and the privilege to do, to sing praise to God at the top of our lungs, to extol His virtues. It's like fire in their bones. You know, we, we sing a chorus here. It says, I just want to praise you. I just want to lift my hands and say, I love you. You are everything to me, and I exalt your holy name on high. That's the words of the chorus that we sing. And yet, when we sing it so often, we sing it like we have to. Amen. Amen. Not like we get to or that we want to. And not all suffering is persecution either. Sickness is suffering, but isn't necessarily persecution. You know, it would be persecution if they were denying you or withholding medicine or treatment from you because you were a Christian or because you refused to compromise on your Christian values. Poverty is suffering, but it's not necessarily persecution. It would be persecution if someone were oppressing you and keeping you in poverty because you were a Christian or because you wouldn't deny Christian values. Because of your adherence to righteousness. So why, why persecution? Why does Jesus say blessed are the persecuted? For they 
Theirs is the kingdom of God. Why, why that? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be better if he said blessed are the, are the people who have riches or blessed are the healthy people? Wouldn't that make more sense? Certainly, surely that would display the, the, uh, the willingness of God to be with you, to be, to be characterized with you. Surely that would display his blessing upon you, that he's happy with you, so he prospers you. Did it escape anyone what Jesus did not say? I mean, we, here we have nine consecutive blessed statements where Jesus is saying that it is a blessed thing to be these things, and yet out of the nine, only three of them actually sound like blessed things. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. And to a rational mind, those things actually sound like they could be blessed by virtue of themselves. You know, being merciful has its merits. Being pure has its merits. Making peace has its merits. But being poor, mournful, hungry, meek and lowly, at first glance those things sound like contradictions, don't they? I mean, you're the blessed are the poor. That, how is that a good thing? Certainly being persecuted here at the end of the Beatitudes, who in their right mind would count that as a good thing? I just think it's amazing what Jesus did not say in all of this. He did not say, blessed are the well-fed, the well-dressed, the comfortable, the healthy, and the well-liked. In fact, in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, he said, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers uh, did to the false prophets. They spoke well of false prophets. So woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. You're in the company of false prophets. Would, you would think that it would be the other way around, that the blessed thing would be when other people speak well of you. I'm well-liked. That's a blessed place to be. But this is not a blessed thing. It's no cause for rejoicing. In fact, Jesus says it's cause for, for alarm in one's soul. Amen. Amen. Sometimes we're so worried about being well thought of that we fail to speak the truth in love. The gospel, church, is offensive to those who are lost. The truth is offensive to people who love their lies. Righteousness is offensive to those who love their sin. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, 14, he said, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and though he, through us he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the to the one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. So Christians who live like Christ, who preach Christ, who love like Christ, they are the aroma of Christ, which to the lost, to those who are perishing, means that they have the stench of death. They're the stench of death to them. Righteousness stinks in their nostrils. And that's why so many preachers have led so many churches to make shipwreck of their faith and their doctrines. You know, Paul warned Timothy in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. He said that we have to wage the good warfare, Timothy. He said, hold fast to faith and a good conscience. Rejecting these things have made some make shipwreck of their faith. We see this all over the place in mainline churches. The smell of righteousness is such a stench in their nostrils that they abandon the faith. They preach a different gospel that's not a gospel at all. 
They do it in the name of love, which is not love at all because it leads people to affirm and celebrate their sin. It makes the self, the self-individual person, to be the arbiter of what is right and holy. And it puts God as a subordinate creature to the will and whim of sinful man. So in order to be accepted by all, in order to be spoken well of by all, because that is their standard of what's right. Does everyone agree with me? Is everyone, does, do we have agreement? Do we have consensus? That's the standard of righteousness. In order to not offend anyone, they twist the Scriptures. They commit linguistic and historical fraud in order to push a forgiveness-only gospel, which again is no gospel at all. It is cause for great sadness to preach that kind of a gospel. There's no good news in that, not, not in the end, not when we stand before the Lord of righteousness. Amen. So again, why persecution? Why do we have this? Why is this a blessed thing? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, so chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says... In verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when we received, that when you received the word of God in which you heard from us, you accepted it not only as the word of, not as the word of men, but as it were, really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. So they were being persecuted in the Thessalonican church because of Christ, because of righteousness. That's what Paul says. And there are two reasons that are given why they were being purchased, uh, why, why, for, why, why persecution. There are two reasons that are given. In verse 13, we see that it's because they received the word of God as the word of God and believed. And Paul says that that is evidence in verse 14. This is evidence for they became imitators of the churches of God in Christ because of their suffering. So reason number one for their persecution and for yours also and for all of ours who, persecute, who are persecuted for the sake of Christ is so that our faith can be shown as credible and true. Amen. Amen. Not surface level or lip service, but true Saving, believing, joyful faith in Jesus Christ. Reason number two he gives us in verse 16. He says, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. So, so, for, so far we see persecution of righteousness and for on the account of Christ. We see it working on two different fronts. It's to give credibility and faith to the believer. The credibility of faith to the believer for the believer, and for the world to see. It's to lend credibility to my faith. And then, on the other side, we see it to fully, completely, without question, condemn the unbeliever. In 2 Thessalonians, that's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. He comes back to that subject in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He gives a fuller explanation. In verse 3, he says, We ought... Always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. 
Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you were enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So let's stop right there just for a second. What is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Is that they are steadfast in their faith, in the middle of persecution, in the middle of suffering, and they endure it. And to what end? To what end are they enduring this? To what purpose? What's the purpose of their endurance of persecution and suffering? He says that their steadfast faith in the midst of persecution, what is, their, what is the end of that? That they may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which they are also suffering. So the the end of it is to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Now remember why they were being persecuted. It's because of their faith that the word of God was true. They received it not as the word of man, but as the word of God. That was 1 Thessalonians. You remember that? We just read that. That's why they're being persecuted. Because they received the word of God as being, hey, this is actually the word of God. Do you know that there are churches, if we stand up and say that today, that this is the actual word of God, they will laugh you out of the building? Amen. Amen. I want to be clear. Paul says this is the evidence of the righteousness, of the righteous judgment of God, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. You endure this persecution, this this suffering, this, uh, this uh, you know, hatred and them talking bad about you, you endure all that for the sake of Christ, because of righteousness, because you believe the word of God. He says this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. This persecution that you're enduring through faith, evidence of God's righteous judgment. To be clear, we are not saved by persecution. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ Amen. alone. Persecution does not save us. It does not redeem us. It does, however, add credibility, public legitimacy to our confession and profession of faith. We suffer for the kingdom of God to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God by true, legitimate, steadfast faith. Not because of any work that we've done on our own behalf, not because of our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Him who saved us. We are identified with Him in the persecution that we endure because of Him. And that's what He says when He says, on account of my name, it means because of me. That's what Paul said in this passage in 1 Thessalonians. He said, you suffered the same things from your countrymen as the Christians suffered from the Jews. They killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Remember, Jesus told us that the the servant is not any better than his master. The servant is not above his master. If they hate Jesus, they will hate anyone who preaches him. So let's keep reading in 2 Thessalonians, verse 6. He says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflicted you. So there's that second reason, that reason number two for persecution again, that it fills up the iniquity or the measure of their sins. God considers it just to punish those who persecute the righteous. And the wicked, He allows them to fill up the fullness of their sins. That's what Paul said in his first letter. There will be no question 
Listen to me. There will be absolutely, if you're wondering, am I going to stand there on that day and think, am I going to make it? There will be no question in anyone's mind who belongs and who does not on the day of judgment. Because God is ultimately just and his judgments are ultimately right. Look at what Paul says in the next verse, chapter verse 7. He's, remember what came before. Your steadfastness of faith and persecution, that's verse 4, is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, the legitimacy, the, uh, 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 the legitimacy of your faith in verse 5. Because it is just, verse 6, to punish those who afflict you, and now in verse 7, and to grant... This is the reason for persecution to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus when is so we're persecuted so that we can have relief and when does that relief come when Jesus comes again to judge the wicked he says to grant relief to you who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. There will be a great judgment to those who do not trust him, to those who do not know him, and we will have be granted great relief. Verse 9, they, that's the wicked, will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, look at this, to be uh, glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Amen. So we will marvel at the Lord because of his judgments. Here's the thing. Everyone who received judgment will get the full measure of what he deserves because God is righteous and has allowed that person to fulfill the measure of his iniquity, to fulfill the measure of their sin. No one will be in hell who does not fully want to be. Amen. That may strike you as odd, but it's the truth. They will not look from hell over into heaven across that, that great chasm. They will not look from their place of torment into our place of eternal rest and say, Man, I wish I could be there. They won't. As bad as they have it, as much torment as they have, no one in hell will want to be where we are because it will mean being in the presence of a righteous and holy God. No, they will burn with hot anger toward Him. Hot anger and pride. They will look over there and hate all of us for what we have been given and hate Him for what we have been given. Amen. No one will be in hell who does not want to be because their sin is full and then we will marvel, they will marvel at how much they hate Him. And we will marvel at how much we love Him. We will marvel at Him because of our reward. Amen. Amen. The kingdom of heaven is our inheritance and it is a great reward. You know, we will see the fate of the persecutors, the wicked, and we will look to Christ in absolute awe. We will look to Him in rejoicing and overflowing gladness that we have this great inheritance in His kingdom because of Him. Amen. We will marvel that we have been saved from the fate of the wicked, and we will rejoice that His judgment is righteous. But we will marvel even more 
and how we've been granted life in him. You know, we don't need to look any further than the Apostle Paul, who, who was himself a persecutor of Christians. He persecuted the church of God, killed them, filling up the measure of his sin. Amen. And he will be there in heaven with us. And so will countless others who were co-persecutors of Paul all throughout history, who came to a knowledge and faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were overt persecutors and they will marvel at God's mercy and grace. We all will. We are all condemned criminals. It will be a gloriously jarring thing and we will spend the next eternity using every chance that we have to say thank you, Lord, to exult in his goodness towards us. And then finally, Paul gives us a third and probably the most important reason for persecution in the next two verses. In verse 11, we begin, he says, To this end we pray for you, always pray for you, that God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our Lord, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says that the point of his prayer and the substance of his prayer is that you may be made worthy of God's calling. And we know from the immediate context, we know from what he's talking about right here in these few verses, in this little paragraph here, we know that when he says to be made worthy, he's talking about the public legitimacy and confidence in your profession and confession of faith through persecution and suffering. And they have steadfastness and faith to endure it. He's praying that they would have steadfastness and faith to endure it. That's what he repeats. He repeats that sentiment when he says that he wants uh, God to fulfill every resolve for good works and faith. He's repeating what he said in 1 Thessalonians. But, But here's the end. To what end? Remember the number three, the reason number three for persecution is that the name of the Lord Jesus, verse 12, would be glorified in us and us in him. It says loud and clear, Christ is my supreme treasure. When we endure suffering and persecution because of our association with him, and yet we say it is worth it. Just like Hannah Lee said, with the loss of her family, it was worth it. Paul meant this in 2 Corinthians 4. He was talking about the temporary and transient nature of this old body and all the things that we have to endure in this life, in this world. And he said in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 4, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In the Sermon on the Mount, in the verses immediately following uh, 10 uh, 10 through 12, where Jesus gives us the blessedness of persecution. The very next things out of his mouth, he says that we are salt and light in the world. In the the pressure of persecution, we are made to be lights to shine in the darkness, to be testimonies to the beauty and brilliance and surpassing worth of Jesus Christ when we endure with rejoicing and gladness. 
We're blessed in the crucible of persecution because our faith is shown not only to us, but to the world around us to be true. That's one of the main reasons we can trust the gospel. We can trust Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They suffered for that truth. They suffered for it and yet held to it and rejoiced in their persecution because they were able to suffer with their Christ, with their Lord. Our persecutors, the ones who commit these acts against us, they are completing their iniquity. We are blessed in this crucible because it shows our faith to be true. Our persecutors are completing their iniquity. And God's justice and judgment is shown to be right. And God is glorified in us. And He is seen to be supremely valuable to us as a testimony to the nations of His goodness. Amen. On that day when we stand before Him, he, we will be glorified in Him. When He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of your master. And so we rejoice. We rejoice that we are persecuted on his account. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you once again for your word. I pray, Lord, that it rests upon us with a holy like holy seed, Lord, to give us faith when we face persecution and we know that we will so that when we face it, we may rejoice because we know that it legitimizes, it brings confidence to our faith. We know that the wicked are filling up their iniquity and your judgment is being shown as righteous and true and we know that you are glorified in us when we say it is all worth it. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.